she's alive. Alive! Hello, creeps. I bid you welcome back to the Eldritch Review Podcast. I am Dr. Jack Al Creeper. The Eldritch Review is the podcast dedicated to reviewing and discussing horror movies from anywhere in the 1920s to the 1940s and beyond. Before I get to the episode, I would like to say another huge thank you to all of my supporters and creeps. Last week's episode, in commemoration of my one-month anniversary, I had 291 total plays, and now... As of today, December 2nd, 2020, I now have 342, which has completely smashed my December goal well before the actual month's anniversary date. It's because of all of you listening that the Eldritch Review is operating like such a fine-oiled machine, and I could not be more grateful and more humbled. I know I said that a lot last week, but truth be told, every day is a new reason to be thankful to be doing what I'm doing here on the Eldritch Review. Thank you creeps, thank you supporters, and thank you everyone in my life. Let's keep it rolling! Today I'm going to talk to you about a film that's very nostalgic for me specifically. It's my mom's favorite monster, and naturally, one that I've watched time and time again. Another James Whale classic and special, Universal's 1935 classic, The Bride of Frankenstein starring Elsa Lanchester as the bride and, reprising their roles from just four years earlier, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster and Colin Clive as Dr. Frankenstein. As I mentioned, this movie is very nostalgic and special to me. When I was growing up and very first watching horror movies, one of the very first I remember watching was Bride of Frankenstein. My mom is a diehard Frankenstein's monster fan and always loved to show that movie to my siblings and I. Of course, with Bride of Frankenstein being its direct sequel, we watched that one a lot too. I have to say that as far as sequels are concerned, this one is certainly one of the best of all time. According to the synopsis on Rotten Tomatoes, The Bride of Frankenstein tells the story of Dr. Frankenstein, who is recovering from his injuries that was sustained in the mob attack upon himself and his creation, the monster. He falls under the control of his former mentor, Dr. Pretorius, who insists that the now-chastened doctor resume his experiments in creating new life. Meanwhile, the monster remains on the run from those who wish to destroy him without understanding that his intentions are generally good despite his lack of socialization and self-control. As always here on the Eldritch Review, I will review this movie with pros, cons, and burning questions. 
So let's get started with the pros. Number one is Elsa Lanchester playing double roles. In the very beginning of the movie, we witness Elsa Lanchester cross-stitching while being praised and personified as Mary Shelley, the original writer of 1818's Frankenstein novel. Her constituents recap the original story of the 1931 original in such a beautiful flashback sequence, leaving Elsa, or Mary, to reveal that there is so much more that she had yet to reveal and she begins the movie from there. Fast forward to the creation and the success of The Bride, Lanchester then returns to the screen to become one of Hollywood and Universal's very first and one of the most well-known glamour ghouls of all time. Despite her short screen time and hissing vocabulary, there is no question how incredible her prowess really is. I have to say that Universal has definitely casted some incredible players along their history of movie making. Of course, most people resort to Boris Karloff or Bela Lugosi first, but there is no way in the world that you can make that list without having Elsa Lanchester on there as well. She was and still continues to be such a fundamental character, and how amazing that she was the first woman to scare audiences the way she did and personify one of literature's most well-known names as well. She was truly a beacon. I'm a huge Elsa Lanchester fan. Number two is Familiar Faces Making a Return. By the time Bride of Frankenstein came out, Universal's more infamous and well-loved horror movies had already been released in theaters and received by the audiences. Before Bride of Frankenstein, Universal had created and released The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Mummy, The Invisible Man, and so much more. With all of these exceptional creature features came even more amazing actors, actresses, and movie makers that have gone on to become household names and people we love even to this day. Some of these names we've gone on to appreciate have continued to make their marks in this movie as well. Here's a test for you creeps listening. Let's see if you recognize any of these fine folks. Boris Karloff, Colin Clive, Una O'Connor, E.E. E. Clive, and Dwight Fry. If you recognize all or any of these names, you may be a universal monster buff like myself. Or, if you recognize none of them, you have some movies to watch. It's okay. I'll wait. Number three is the castle setting. I mention this a lot when I do the Eldritch Review, but one thing I can never get enough of is the universal set designing crew. You'll remember I've noted both the Paris Opera House, Frankenstein's Castle, and Dracula's Castle. But now, I would really like to rave about the castle that Henry Frankenstein is taken to when he is presumed dead. As far as beautiful scenery is concerned, there is truly nothing like this one. The gothic architecture, the candelabras, the large dining hall, and the extra large bedrooms. Man, I could just go on and on. I guess the reason why I discuss this point, or rather these points, is because it is my biggest aesthetic. And when I see houses, castles, I get very excited and I completely imagine immersing myself in that scenery and living wherever they are. I would love nothing more than to go back to those times and even if they're just set designs, I could make those castles my home because they are just so massive but they're so pretty all at the same time and something about that aesthetic just speaks to me. It's that gothic aesthetic. I love it. Number four, this is one of the best sequels ever made. Several movies, even back then, have sequels that follow the original. You don't need me to tell you that some are fantastic and some are downright awful and pitiful. 
If we're talking about The Bride of Frankenstein, I have to say that this is definitely one of, if not the very best sequels ever created in cinema history. I believe that the first Frankenstein from 1931 was so well done and dynamic that when Bride was being planned and created, James Whale and his team knew good and well they had to keep the complexity, otherwise audiences and critics would be very severely disappointed. Luckily for James Whale and his crew, they not only managed to craft an amazing sequel, but they truly gave a new vision and expanded look on the universe and story that they themselves created very loosely off of Mary Shelley's original 1818 novel. The movie recapped the original and offered so much more content that continued the story rather than change it and adapt it. In my personal opinion, I believe a sequel is great when 1. It adds to the movie rather than desecrate it, and 2. It can directly follow its original. As I mentioned in my review of The Invisible Man, which was another James Whale creation, I completely and fully love and admire James Whale for each and everything he has done in the scope of cinema, more specifically, horror cinema. No one else in Hollywood and horror history deserves an extra spotlight the way he does. His movies are so beautifully crafted and so deeply sinister, it almost makes you question, how was this allowed back then? I'm forever a fan of his. Rest in peace to you, Mr. Whale. Number five is the bottle sequence. One thing Universal did really well in all of their classic horror movies was clever filmmaking and pioneering decisions that would inspire directors, filmmakers, and movies to come later in the future. In the film, when Dr. Pretorius enters the castle in the middle of the night to seek out Frankenstein, he explains the commonality they both share, which was the ability to create and foster human life. After explaining to his beloved Elizabeth how badly he wants to try again and continue his work from just seconds prior, Frankenstein is now curious to see what the doctor has done and how he may continue in his pursuit from just four years before, even though in the movie, it was just yesterday. As Dr. Pretorius takes Frankenstein to his apartment, he opens an old chest which contains an experiment he conducted which involves the shrinking of various real human figures, including a king and queen, an archbishop and devil, and a ballerina and mermaid. It was this experiment and unveiling from Pretorius that hoped would sell Frankenstein, and, to his luck, led to much success after many attempts and convincing. The reason why I listed this as a pro is not only is it fascinating, but as far as a movie is concerned, it was absolutely incredible and frankly unimaginable. Remember back when I reviewed The Invisible Man and I mentioned how, without CGI and modern movie making equipment, they were still able to turn Claude Rains completely invisible? Well this movie delves into the same question. How in the world did James Whale and his team achieve the effect that these people, who were real human actors and actresses, and even one Olympic gold medalist, were really small and able to fit in a glass jar? Unfortunately, I was not able to pin down the exact answer, but nonetheless, for the mid-1930s, this will never be not impressive. James Whale was definitely ahead of his time, and honestly another crucial reason we should love him and support him the way that we support Carl Frund, Todd Browning, and so much more. Number 6 is Jack Pierce's makeup brilliance. Heard of the name Jack Pierce? Like the other major names I mentioned above earlier, if you have, you're probably a huge Universal Monsters fan and you know your stuff. If you haven't, it's time for you to go watch the movies. I recommend starting with Hunchback of Notre Dame and work on from there. 
Even though I still really want you to watch these movies, I will go ahead and tell you who Jack Pierce was and why we all love him so much. All of the major monster makeup looks that you know and love to this day, like Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, the mummy in the sarcophagus, and even the bride of Frankenstein herself, all the incredible and beautiful products of Jack Pierce. Greece in 1889, Jack Pierce completely gave our characters the look and style we know them to have to this very day. If it wasn't for his artistry, who knows what these monsters and these characters would have looked like. What I love most is how Jack Pierce's work was seen on more than Universal Classics. One of my favorite horror movies of all time in which Jack Pierce provided the makeup for, outside of the Universal umbrella, was Bela Lugosi's 1932 classic, White Zombie. Naturally, Pierce became a pioneer in the special effects world, inspiring the likes of Rick Baker and Tom Savini. And by May of 2013, a memorial art gallery in Los Angeles was named in his honor. What an incredible career. Finally, on a more comedic note, number seven is the owl under the wreckage of the windmill. Pro, as I mentioned, is definitely more comedic than practical, but this always makes me chuckle no matter how many times I watch this movie. Monster is drowning and killing Hans, the father of little Maria from the first movie. There is a giant owl that is in the wreckage along with them, and this beautiful creature is literally sitting back, hanging out, and watching this huge beast heartlessly kill this innocent village man without turning its head or batting his eyes. And then, when Han's wife comes to check on her husband to make sure he came back safely, the monster startles her, grabs her arm, and yanks her down the same waters as her husband before her. Again, this major owl is sitting back and watching the murders take place like it's his job. Like he's being paid to watch these people struggle. I have to say, man, that is one insensitive and hilarious owl. I've mentioned the pros. Really, I love this movie so much, as I do with other Universal movies, but unfortunately, I do have to delve into the cons now. So, let's get started. One is the bride's three-minute screen time. Now, I know that this is probably and more than likely a con for most Monster fans, but there was no way that I was going to complete this review without bringing it up at least once. I really am very unhappy that there was so much hype for this bride and this mate that was said to be created specifically for the monster, but this monster only had three minutes of screen time, not even, and then showed up the original monster too, didn't even accept his offer. That was a conscious decision, I'm not too sure, but I definitely feel bad for Elsa Lanchester to go through nearly three to four hours of makeup and to have to wear a literal cage around her hair to achieve the infamous bride hair for only three minutes of actual film. Could have seen more of her because even though she was not as vocal and violent as the original monster, it still would have been fabulous to see more of what she can do and give her more of a character development. Just me, I suppose. And number two is minor discrepancies between the original and the sequel. Naturally, when a movie has a drought of a couple years in between adaptations, a lot of things can either evolve or change, whether that's for the betterment or the worst possible. Frankenstein, though the movie ends and the sequel picks right back up where it was left, the real story is that there were four years in between the two. In those four years, a lot went on behind the scenes, starting with James Whale not even wanting to do it and make it in the first place. He was very content with his first production, much heckling and demanding from Universal Pictures, he decided to take on the project anyway. 
Though his vision never changed and his stories very closely correlate, a lot of discrepancies exist, mainly within the character of Elizabeth. In 1931, Mae Clark played the wife-to-be of Frankenstein, but due to her illness had to be replaced by Valerie Hobson. Apart from the actress change, the hair color and the personality changed as well. We went from Mae being blonde and sophisticated with a worried heart, to Valerie who was brunette and not as established as Mae. She played her role perfectly as a fiancé worried about her husband-to-be and what he may do next. For me, discrepancies and inaccuracies such as these do not affect me too negatively, however I know that they do for some people so I figured I would share these as a con because they can be very frustrating for some people. Normally I would go through some burning questions but I actually don't have any burning questions for this movie. Like I mentioned, this movie is fabulous, it's so well done, it's definitely one of my favorites because it is super nostalgic for me. My only real cons are just, you know, the discrepancies and really just the fact that we didn't get to see much of the bride, but for the most part, this movie was really a masterpiece. So, with that being said, let's move on to the Eldritch Review Interesting Facts for Bride of Frankenstein, 1935. Colin Clive's alcoholism had worsened since the first film. But James Whale did not recast the role because his hysterical quality was necessary for the film. I guess I don't know enough about Colin Clive, but I had no idea he was such an alcoholic. But I think it's really interesting to note that James Whale was like, I don't want to part with that. This is the exact effect that I need. Monsters for a little bit in light of this new holiday season. If you watch the movie It's a Wonderful Life, you know Jimmy Stewart and everybody loves him because he had been in movies prior to that like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and movies like that. That all anger, frustration, and all those issues he had with his family, that was really just more PTSD that he was experiencing in that moment. So his aggression when directors are able to like kind of know their actors and be like whoa okay they're going through a lot maybe i can kind of play with this and hey props to those actors for not letting their issues dictate the acting i mean part of it is part of it isn't but for the most part it really is just him just letting it out and the director was like wow this is a perfect effect that i want for like a father who is you know angry and stressed out and on his luck and has all these feelings and thoughts i mean but not too severely i guess you can say number the title bride of frankenstein is an ambiguous title which could refer to either the valerie hobson or elsa lanchester characters as both the colin clive and boris karloff characters are given the same frankenstein within the movie three according to elsa lanchester her bride makeup took three hours for her face alone while boris karloff's took five see and that's why i put it as a con because I think it's so frustrating. I mean, for me, I can't imagine how she must have felt back then. But I can't imagine how frustrating it must be to sit in the makeup chair for three hours per day to shoot three minutes of film. Like, that's ridiculous. And forget makeup for a minute. She also had to have like a wire cage put into her hair so she can achieve that infamous Bride of Frankenstein do that we all know and love today. She had to go through all of this again for three minutes of screen time. I don't know how she felt, but damn, I would have been pissed. Or Boris Karloff sweated off 20 pounds laboring in the hot costume and makeup. Wow, no good.
interesting one for you. Number five, the title of Little Maria's father had been changed from Ludwig in the original Frankenstein film to Hans in this new sequel. That was one thing I noticed when I rewatched this movie as like an adult and doing it for the Eldritch Review is I watched Frankenstein because I just did it a few weeks ago and I remember Ludwig and he was saying that and you know they were living on their property and then I hear Hans and I'm just like wait huh I thought I was talking about something else and I honestly I didn't recognize him because his name was Hans but until I read this this uh interesting fact from IMDb I was like oh I don't see that's another discrepancy I didn't even mention that because I wanted to cover it here but that's another discrepancy for you Elizabeth was played by brunette Valerie Hobson who replaced blonde Mae Clark from the original Frankenstein film in 1931 due to Mae Clark's illness at the time this change of hair color is a bit jarring since Bride of Frankenstein picks up right where the original left off see this is why with movies there's such a weird drought period and why a lot can happen. I know it takes a lot to make a movie and I'm by no means a director, but if I was gonna do a movie and then a sequel, I think you have to do them like at least like a year in advance. If you're gonna take a drought period, make it a year, not four years. You know, I can understand, you know, James Whale did not wanna make this movie, so maybe that's why the drought took so long. But if you have the idea, like let's say it's Jordan Peele, right, with Get Out and Us, have made those the same movie he didn't obviously but if he were to make those the same movie done it where it's like get out is one year and then us is the next year because then your actors are fresh they're just coming off this movie so they're in that same mindset i don't know i just feel like it's like it's it's better when it's a chain reaction what do you guys think jack pierce altered the makeup of frankenstein's monster from this film's predecessor to reflect that he had survived the mill fire at the end of frankenstein 1931 with some flesh burns and with much of his hair singed off i told you guys he was a good makeup artist you guys don't listen to me i'm kidding you do bella lugosi was considered for the role of dr pretorius now, I'm not saying this because I am a huge Bela Lugosi fan. Okay, maybe I am. But how rad would that have been? I mean, you guys, I don't know if you guys have seen Scared to Death or you've seen, holy crap. Can you imagine how friggin' cool it would have been if he was Dr. Pretorius? I would have loved to have seen that. Now, you guys know I like to save the best for last and I like to reveal the best facts I can find for you. Luckily, I found two on Bride of Frankenstein on IMDb, so let's get right into it. Number 9, Boris Karloff and former intimate partner James Whale were no longer on speaking terms during the film due to a very personal dispute that occurred on the set of The Old Dark House, 1932. They ended up speaking via other actors that served as their messengers. This was so monumental. James Whale refused to ever work with Boris Karloff again, and one year after The Old Dark House, Claude Rains was instead hired for James Whale's next movie, The Invisible Man. Boris Karloff had been announced in the title role, however, the studio system forced them to work this one last time. The rest is history. And finally, number 10, as a result of audience reactions from the film's preview screenings during the first week of April 1935, the film was extensively re-edited. Many of the scenes were deleted and trimmed, and at least one, the scene where the monster stumbles into the gypsy camp, was added in. 
As a result of the editing, the original uncut film was approximately 15 minutes longer than its official release length of 75 minutes. So maybe that's why we don't see more of The Bride. I'm curious. I wish every time I hear that a Universal film gets lost or footage gets lost, I'm like, man, what I'd give to see what got lost because it could have been a lot more scarier. It could have been a lot more darker. We just don't know. And the sad thing is we'll never know. This is something I wonder. I really wonder. I wish somehow they could be saved. If they can be, we need to save them. If not, no big deal. But like I said, how freaking cool would that be? I guarantee you on the lost footage, there's more scenes with the bride. I'm just, I'm just sure. So that concludes today's episode of The Bride of Frankenstein 1935. I hope you have enjoyed listening as I've enjoyed reviewing it for you. Remember to follow The Eldritch Review on Facebook, The Eldritch Review, or on Instagram, at The Eldritch Review. We also have official merchandise available on Spreadshirt that was designed by Heartless Designs, including the new Eldritch Winter Launch, featuring all new selections for the cold months ahead including sweaters, sweatshirts, hoodies, and jackets available for men, women, and those who are non-binary. And also on Spreadshirt, we have a new collection of universal monster-themed designs designed and created by friend and big-time creep here on the Eldritch Review, Austin Webb. Be sure to check our Instagram bio for the link to shop. Order now today, just in time for the holidays. Next week's episode will feature Universal's 1941 Ultimate Classic and a huge fan favorite among viewers, The Wolfman, starring Claude Rains as Sir John Talbot, Lon Chaney Jr. as Larry Talbot, and of course, the King of Darkness, Bella Lugosi as Bella. Next week will also feature my next special guest, Mr. Brian Rodriguez of the Instagram account at Unimonsters. Brian was one of, if not the first, to create an Instagram account dedicated to the Monsters of Universal, and since then, he has supported and endorsed the Eldritch Review since the very beginning of our show. I am beyond grateful for his friendship and his support. With that being said, I am super pumped up for that episode, and I can't wait to talk to you guys again. So, until next week. Music